Today's episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter.com. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. Recovery Elevator episode 151. There are these subconscious messages we're getting every single day in society. I can't even drive down the highway without seeing three or four billboards for booze. And and I think so many people get those messages and sock them away without realizing that they're receiving those messages. And then they react, you know, later and say, oh, yeah, I can, oh, I, I can definitely have this drink. I can drink this or that. Or even a lot of people like my parents, you know, will just keep on drinking and they're getting these messages that it's fine. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for almost exactly 40 months. On today's podcast, we've got Kim. She's 43 years old. At the time of the recording, she's been sober for three days. She also mentions during an interview that she found it hard to admit that she needed help. Well, me too on that one, Kim. In 12 days on January 20th, 2018, we are going to be in Dallas. So join us for the Recovery Elevator Social. Go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash Dallas for more information and to get your ticket. If there's one thing you've learned on this podcast, it's that community is the most important part in sobriety. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing. We're going to be building our recovery community, our recovery network. So I'd love to see you there. As I mentioned earlier, this episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter.com. A fresh new year has begun, and if you're setting new goals for your business, it's extremely difficult to reach them without the right people on your team. And ZipRecruiter has transformed how you go about finding them. Are you in need of great talent for your business but short on time? You don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find the perfect hire. You just need the right tools, smarter tools. ZipRecruiter posts your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then, ZipRecruiter actively looks for the most qualified candidates and invites them to apply. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners of the Recovery Elevator podcast can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. Okay, let's get started. Thank you, Molly Churchill, for sending me this link. She saw a CBS Sunday morning program about the HIMSS program. This is the Human Intervention Motivation Study. Alcoholism does not segregate. It affects all races, all genders, all professions, all types of people. And the HIMSS program, again, the Human Intervention Motivation Study, is specific to pilots. This is a rehab program specifically for people in the aviation industry. I don't know if you've seen the movie Flight with Denzel Washington, but like I just mentioned, alcoholism, it does not segregate. There are several pilots, in fact, 6,000 pilots that have been treated and returned to the cockpit since the 1970s. Wow. The reason why this article struck my attention is because it claims an 80% success rate. It says that 80% of pilots who enter the program don't relapse at all, and those who do will most likely relapse only once. 
and there has never been, again, never been an issue with a pilot who was undergoing treatment while flying. Wow. I'm not a fan of the recovery stats because they're abysmal. However, when you do hear an abysmal recovery stat, keep in mind that you get to start over again and again and again. But for most rehab facilities, even the one I visited in Thailand, Hope Rehab, which does a phenomenal job, they're in the high teens to low teens. So when I heard that this program dedicated just to pilots has an 80% success rate, I wanted to investigate a little further. And if you would like to see the segment on CBS, you can find the link to that segment on the recoveryelevator.com website in the episode show notes 151. There's also a link to the HIMSS website as well. But let's go through the interview. So Peggy Gilman, who is the former FAA administrator in charge of safety, says a drinking problem isn't the end of a pilot's career. The CBS reporter then asks, with an 80% success rate, why aren't you screaming this good news from every rooftop in Washington, D.C.? And Peggy responds with, dang, that's a, that's a good question. So under the HIMSS program, there are currently upwards of 1,300 pilots flying with a special medical license. Since the mid-1970s, like I mentioned, 6,000 pilots have been treated and returned to the cockpit. Peggy says, and I love this line, what we don't want is a pilot to hide something that could be a risk. So what is this HIMSS program all about? Well, the first 28 days of HIMSS are all about stabilization. Someone who ran the HIMSS program said a member of the general public is three times more likely to have a relapse than a pilot. And he says the reason for that is they don't have a system in place. The HIMSS program system entails one month at an FAA approved rehab facility. Number two, continued monitoring and drug tests. And number three, ongoing treatment for at least three years. Three years. Wow. I used to think that 30 days in a rehab facility was more than sufficient time, but it's not. If you do find yourself going to rehab, do your best to stay for 60, 90 days because 30 days just isn't enough. Also in the interview, it says, since the inception of the HIMSS program in the past 43 years, there has not been one commercial accident or incidents. Now that is the proof in the pudding that this program works, they say. The Sunday morning reporter asked the HIMSS representative if this program can be implemented with the general public. And he said the issue is that with the general public, there isn't the same amount of leverage. This leverage would be a job, and it's easy to hide in the masses with the general public. He says if you threaten a pilot to take away his wings, like threatening a doctor to take away his stethoscope, that's a lot of leverage. They interview Dana Archibald, who is now a full-time 737 captain with a major U.S. airline, and he says without the HIMSS program, he doesn't think he would be alive. Another pilot interviewed says, in sobriety, I've gotten to live out more miracles than anyone I know. Number one, that he flew again. Number two, his wife stayed with him, that all his kids still love him. And three, that he didn't die like his parents did. As far as I can conclude, the biggest difference with the HIMSS program for pilots and other rehab programs for the general public is the leverage used with the HIMSS program. Again, that leverage is the job. They'll take away that person's wings. I also want to read some things from the HIMSS website. Again, you can find a link to this at recoveryelevator.com, episode show notes 151. It's a basic website with some great information. It talks about the disease model of addiction. It says, the American Medical Association recognized alcohol dependence as a disease over 55 years ago. Alcohol dependence fits the disease model because it is a dysfunctional state with characteristic form. Use of some drugs, including alcohol, may cause dependency. 
The medical term for this dependency or addiction is chemical dependency. In order for a chemical to be addictive, it must possess three properties. It must be, number one, mind-altering or mood-changing. Yep, alcohol fits that category. Number two, euphoric, that category as well. And number three, reinforcing. That is taking the chemical stimulates taking more of the chemical, aka I found it extremely difficult to nearly impossible to quit after taking that first drink. The HIMSS website also touches upon the stigma. There are also misconceptions about who suffers from alcoholism. Only 5% of alcoholics are in the chronic stages of the disease and live, air quotes, under a bridge. Most alcoholics are still quite functional. They often exercise regularly, are engaged in productive work, and live with other family members. Over time, for the alcoholic, the normalcy of these areas of life deteriorates. He or she often becomes socially isolated, physically ill, and emotionally stressed while experiencing financial difficulties, legal problems, and spiritual conflict. In many cases, the alcoholic experiences one or more of these problems before his dependency becomes apparent in the workplace. Now, I have read a lot of definitions, descriptions of the disease alcoholism, but that one is pretty darn good. The HIMSS website also talks about disease characteristics. It says, chemical dependency is a chronic condition, meaning that it is permanent and prone to relapse. It is also primary, meaning it exists independently and is not secondary to some other underlying mental illness. And it is progressive, meaning it gets worse over time. Current understanding of this disease is that it is significantly influenced by genetic predisposition. For alcohol, this predisposition is to believe to be around 10% of the members of any large group. You've heard that number said before in this podcast as well. This figure, it is present across all lines of race, gender, intelligence, and occupation. The chemical processes that occur in the brain of the individual who is genetically predisposed are significantly different than the activity in a normal individual. I'm going to insert enhanced dopamine receptors right there. Okay, back to the website. When using an addictive substance, the activation of the brain's centers of pleasure and well-being is so rapid and strong, the individual almost immediately develops a strong emotional attachment to the drug. Over time, this emotional attachment is accompanied by physical need. For alcoholics, sudden abstinence from alcohol can result in physical withdrawal symptoms, ranging from headaches, sweating, shaking of hands, seizures, convulsions, and death. As mentioned previously, dependency, or addiction, is manifested in three ways. Loss of control, compulsive use, and continued use despite adverse consequences. These characteristics are sometimes referred to as the three C's with the HIMSS program. Again, those three C's are loss of control. Yep, Pablo had that. Compulsive use. Pablo definitely had that. And continued use despite adverse consequences. Pablo definitely had that. Paul, I'm saying Pablo, that's my Spanish name. We, Paul, Gary, myself, my addiction, that was confusing right there. We definitely had all three of these C's. The website also states, one's understanding of the disease of chemical dependency can be determined by how one answers the following questions. I love this. Number one, is a person alcoholic because they drink too much or does a person drink too much because they are alcoholic? Put that one in the dome, shake it around for a second. Answer is B. A person drinks too much over a long period of time because they are alcoholic. While many people misuse alcohol while learning how to imbibe properly and moderately, over time, the negative consequences or misuse 
result in a reduction in overindulgent behavior. This is what I personally witnessed in my 20s and early 30s as my good friends and my brother kind of phased out of drinking because they had a hangover. They weren't as productive the next day. They felt like shit the next day. Well, myself, who fell in that 10% genetic predisposition, continued to drink despite negative consequences. The website then concludes, For some people, however, the negative consequences are denied and the excessive consumption continues. When this denial is accompanied by loss of control, compulsive use, and continued use in spite of adverse consequences, the three C's, we know the disease of chemical dependency is present. That last sentence is a huge informational value bomb. If you're asking yourself, am I an alcoholic? Do I have a drinking problem? Just hit back about 15 to 20 seconds in this podcast and answer that question for yourself. So in this event, a medical solution to the problem is warranted. The HIMSS program seeks to provide medical assistance to pilots suffering from the disease of chemical dependency with dignity and confidentiality. Now, we're kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place. If you want to get that 80% success rate, I guess you could go through the pilot program, become a pilot, and then enter the HIMSS program, but you probably wouldn't make it through that program being an alcoholic. So we're kind of stuck in a pickle. And you might be saying to yourself, well, Paul, I do have a drinking problem. I'm not a pilot. Thanks for sharing this awesome program with me that I can never be a part of. Well, I wanted to share it with you guys because there's a program out there that's extremely successful and focus on the leverage. Just focus on what could be lost if we continue going down that path. And there's a lot of solid information. Like I mentioned, only 5% of alcoholics are the people that air quotes live under the bridge. The majority, and I have found this to be true, we are high functioning. We hold jobs. We are still surrounded by loved ones, but it's this leverage. It's knowing that our wings could be taken away and our wings in real life. That could be our family. That could be our job, our driver's license, our freedom. And at the very worst, it could be our life. So knowledge and information is power only if we do something with it. I really enjoyed doing some research on the HIMSS program. Thank you, Molly Churchill, for sending me that link. And well, enough out of me. Before we hear from Kim, let's hear from Cafe Ari. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Kim, darling, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well today. How are you, Paul? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Kim, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I have been sober three days now. Nice job. Three days. The first 72 hours for me, as I recall, were by far the worst physically, and I was always so happy to get past that moment. So you know, before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun, Kim? 
I am 43. I live in Atlanta. I have two children, a 12-year-old son and a 13-year-old daughter. I am a self-employed attorney. And I think it's funny that you ask what I do for fun because I don't feel like I have a whole lot of time for fun. But the things that do relax me the most are reading. I like to walk my dog, be out in nature. And I love to exercise. I just need to do it a little bit more often. It's been a little hard to get to the gym lately. Yeah, thanks for the background, Kim. And, and let's back it up a little bit. I imagine three days ago was not your first attempt at quitting drinking. In fact, I, I know it wasn't because I see your post in Cafe RE and you've been, you've been going at this for a while. And I think it's going to stick this time. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful of that, Kim. And, but we're going to dive into that as well. So give us a little, little, little background, a little history uh, with your drinking. Yeah, I actually come from a family of alcoholics. My mom drinks several glasses of wine every night, and she is tiny. I don't know how she does it. My dad drinks until he passes out. My brother is the same way, and my husband is too. So, wow, I and is this really currently like this is like as of today? Yeah. This, this is like a drinking patterns of your family. That is exactly right. Yeah, okay. All right, I keep can't going. escape it. And I was always, you know, really appalled by it. So I never touched it. And in fact, there was a joke in among my friends in high school, you know, who's the first one of us who can get Kim drunk? <laughs> and I never, I never touched it. And same thing through college and, and even law school too. I don't, you know, now that I look back on it, I think, wow, that was so stressful. It's amazing that I didn't turn to it back then. But Do you think you never touched um, it just because you knew like what could come down the pipeline given like your family history? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, and not only that, but I saw the way that they behaved and it just, it just really irritated me. I mean, I got to the point where I couldn't even call my mom after 5 p.m. because she was just impossible, mm, okay. really difficult to deal with. And so I was just really adamantly against it for a long time. But then once I started practicing law, it is all over the place in that profession. I mean, lawyers drink at social occasions. They take clients out and entertain them with drinking. Our, my first law firm had a membership to this, basically a a, a kind of an upscale restaurant and club and it was just drinking the whole time hmm. and so I did I did start drinking then but it was a I could take it or leave it I did it because I was there it just never became a problem for me until about four years ago and I went through a divorce and it really just kind of I guess rocked my world and I felt a lot of guilt over some actions that I um, that I did, and I felt a lot of shame about just I felt like I was a bad person. I felt like I was letting my children down, and and not only that, but I was lonely. I was by myself half the time. I didn't have my kids with me all the time anymore. So I found a lot of times that I was sitting there alone, and I just turned to it. I don't, you know, and. It started out at first, honestly, that, you know, I felt like I kind of deserved to have a little fun. I've always been really serious, and I never went through that phase in my 20s where I went out and, you know, drank with friends. And so at first, I kind of thought, maybe I deserve it at this point. But once that wore off, I kind of got past that. Then I realized that it made me numb out, and I thought, wow, you know, all these difficult emotions I'm dealing with seem to go away for a little while. And so it, you know, and I started using it for that. And, and then that's kind of when I realized this really isn't a good thing. And so that's progressed from the last four years to now. And it's gotten to the point where 
I still, I've never been an everyday drinker. I still, you know, even recently, but I've noticed that the times I do drink, it's usually not all the time, but it's usually for the wrong reason. It's because I have an emotion I can't deal with. And I've also realized that it takes more drinks to, you know, quote work, you know, to the, to get to the point where I do numb out from my emotions. Sure. And that's, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> I realize that's a big problem. Yeah, the, the the tolerance is, gosh, I I always thought my high tolerance was such a cool thing. And then later to realize that was just alcoholism slowly building up. You know, the progression was just long and painful. But you, you mentioned awareness, and it's that's that's key to have is just awareness of these negative emotions, and you know, it, it, even understanding. Okay, like I have this negative emotion, and I'm drinking over it. I mean, that's huge. Just the awareness of it. And so, I mean, there's progress right there, even if it seems like day three and it's like the wheels aren't even getting traction. But even what you just said, I hear a lot of progress in your journey, Kim. But let's back it up a little bit. You know, this, this isn't your first attempt to quit drinking. You know, what did you ever put any rules in place? Like, I'm not drinking before five. Yeah, tell us about that. I did, actually. And sometimes they worked, believe it or not. Mm. When, I, I, when I first started, you know, when I was first um, separated from my husband and I told you I went through that period where I felt like I kind of deserved to have fun, at that point, I kind of drank whatever. I liked margaritas. I liked rum and Coke. And I would go to the liquor store and just, you know, get tequila and vodka and rum and, you know, whatever. And actually, when I, you know, when I thought, no, this isn't good, I did stop drinking all that. And I still haven't had that in a long time and I switched to wine and so I don't know if that counts as moderating but I did you know I guess cut back on the heavy stuff and that has worked but the other thing too is I tried you know not drinking when I realized that the emotions are flooding and that works and sometimes it doesn't and I did try the only on weekends and again that works sometimes but sometimes it doesn't so it's for me it's been more of an issue of the amount that I've been drinking when I do drink I don't know if it's technically binge drinking, but it certainly feels like it. Gotcha. And, you know, when I first tried to quit drinking, I just used willpower. I, I was just white knuckling it and I was tapping into the willpower muscle, which I quickly, well, actually two and a half years later, you know, I find out, I found out the willpower method is finite. It's exhaustible, that muscle, and it, it's painful towards the end. And I, you know, so what did you first try to do? when you quit drinking and you know I, I i just look back at my journey and each attempt that ended in relapse i added one more layer to the equation one more thing that in the end like i didn't want to do until this time around i added way too much it seemed like you know there's never is too much because i've been sober for a while now you know i added AA, i got a sponsor i even started a podcast to create accountability etc you know, what are the things that you've added onto your recovery portfolio and on day three, you know, how we're going to get day four, what's something you think you're going to add on this time? Right. Having come from a family of alcoholics, and this has been since I was nine years old, I'm used to being very secretive. And the one thing that has helped uh, that I told myself I would do starting a few weeks ago was, you know, I need to just be completely honest about this and I just need to reach out. I have a lot of codependency issues from my childhood and a lot of that had to, there was a very traumatic incident that happened when I was nine and the parental roles in my household were flipped and so it's very hard for me to reach out for help I'm used to always being the caretaker the one who fixes things for every people you know for everybody else and that has been just a huge challenge for me to admit that I need help from other people and so that's one thing that I have reached out you know, for help in the Cafe RE group 
And I think that has made a really big difference this time. I've tried posting every single day and that makes me feel accountable. And it also, you know, sort of the feelings and the support that I get back from other people there, it makes me realize one, it's okay to reach out for help, you know, that I'm not burdening other people, you know, and then two, it also creates the accountability that, you know, other people can kind of help push me along. And then three, it's also really comforting to know that I'm not the only one out there struggling with this. So I would say, you know, the accountability, the posting every day has helped a lot this time. That and also I have a, a really good therapist that I have started um, seeing this year. And she's also in recovery. She's been sober for 17 years. And so and she tells me, you know, you can call me whenever you want. And again, I'm getting over those issues of reaching out. <laughs> but that has helped a lot, too. So those are, you know, reaching out for help has been a huge thing for me now. That and then I'm just constantly learning about alcoholism. I'm reading Caroline Knapp's book right now. I just finished Russell Brand's new book. I've read The Naked Mind and Alan Carr's book. I love to read. <laughs> and so the more I learn about it, the more it kind of starts to sink in in my head that, you know, this is really a bad thing and I need to, you know, I just need to do what I can to get through it every day and not not rely on alcohol because it's, it's I'm poisoning myself. I'm hurting myself and making myself worse. Wow, there's so, so much. Things. Yeah, there's so much to touch up upon right there. And you nailed a lot of things. A lot of value bombs were just dropped. But I want to specifically talk on the asking for help part. All of our journeys are the same after interviewing. I think on my notepad it says RE151. There's 150 first interview I've done. And our journeys are strikingly similar. We have different places, people, things, times, etc. But I went through the same four years of my journey from 2010 to 2014, where it was just me, myself, and I, and a poodle at the tail end of that, that tried to get sober. And it was all, all the magic happened in my journey in, in May, June, July, and August, and September of 2014, when I reached out for help. And I know exactly what you mean. It is so hard to reach out for help. You know, I told my parents, I actually had real conversations, had the reverse intervention with my parents, my brother, the, and my, my teammates, and my fantasy football league. And that's when the magic happened. And, and you mentioned, you know, asking for help. You're posting every day in, in Cafe RE for accountability. And I love reading those posts. You know, but what's, what's a takeaway? What's, what's a game plan action that we're going to do to ask for help? And I, th I think this probably has to do something with your parents, right? Or your, your close family members. I've already tried. I, I have talked to my mom about it and I've said, you know, mom, I think I have a problem and you know, I need to just stop. And she being, you know, the good alcoholic that she is told me, um, she said, you know, no, you don't, you don't drink every day. As long as you drink when you're not sad, then you're fine. You're just stressing out about it too much. So, <laughs> Oh, the right? infinite wisdom of mothers. And I thought, okay, this isn't going to work. My family isn't really going to be much of a help. So I'm really just trying to reach out for, you know, to friends. And I've actually talked to my ex-husband about it, and he was fantastic. And my husband, even though he's also an alcoholic, has also been really supportive of me. You know, he'll say, oh, it's been, you know, you haven't had a drink in, you know, a week. Good, you know, I'm proud of you. 
So that, but you know, the, like I said, again, the Cafe RE groups, I've had several people give me their phone numbers and say, call me whenever you want. And like I said, my therapist, I just, maybe the next step is I actually take them up on that offer and call somebody when I'm feeling a craving or when, when I'm feeling the need to go to the, you know, to the grocery store and grab some wine. I think that may be the next step. Getting out of my comfort zone like that, I think will help a lot. One thing that I've noticed when I do things to get out of my comfort zone and I actually achieve those things, I feel really proud of myself and happy that I was able to do that. And it just gives me motivation to keep going. <laughs> Lifting up the phone and making a call is so hard to do. And it sounds like you just said that's my next step is when I get that craving, when I get that urge to actually call somebody. And I remember in early sobriety when I called my sponsor, it was the strangest thing. I was like, wow, I'm actually picking up the phone. I don't want to do this. I'm making a call. And regardless if it's like cravings have a lifespan of 20 minutes or whatnot, but I hung up the phone and I didn't drink and I felt better after the call. So yeah, I highly encourage you to just pick up that 10,000 pound phone is what everybody says. It's so hard to do, but yeah, I mean, give me a call. Any, anybody in cafe area, it's so awesome that you're creating that accountability. And you know, so how have you, have you made it this far? Have you made it three days? Because that's, that's a big that's a big amount of time. I couldn't string together three days for the life of me towards the end of 2014. Like, how have you made it this far, and how are we going to get day four? Yeah. Honestly, it hasn't been too difficult. The first day was rough because I was feeling really, really, um, I mean, it's a depressant. So I was feeling sad, and I was feeling, you know, I was kind of hard on myself. So the first day was kind of rough. But since then, it hasn't been too hard. But like I said, I was never an everyday drinker. So I could get a weekend and not really you know, and it not be too difficult. This time, though, I am, like I said, I've got to be really, really cognizant of what I'm feeling. I've, I've started to dabble in meditation, and that seems to help with me getting present in the moment. And when, I, when I'm present in the moment, then I realize that whatever is happening and whatever I'm thinking, it's just, it just is. It's not really, it's not happening to me, those feelings or those situations. And, and I realize that everything is okay, and I don't need to go get wine to them out. So that seems to help being present in the moment. I'm going to start also, like I said, I love to exercise. I need to really get in, back into that habit of, of exercising and taking care of my body. And I also find that this is something that maybe is natural to me is helping other people, but I also find that when I when I post on the, the Facebook page in response to somebody else's struggle, that helps me, you know, keep the course and keep going. So I know it sounds counterintuitive to my, you know, to my process and to what I've done in the past, but it really does help. It makes me feel needed. It makes me feel, you know, like I can really do some good for somebody else. And, and that also gives me the motivation to keep going. Yeah, I'm going to comment on what you just said with the service component is recovery is so confusing. And, you know, with, especially with cafe, there's you know, sometimes people cancel. It's, it's not for everybody, but sometimes people cancel. It's like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I'm really getting very much. And I've got this thing that I copy and paste. And I say, I encourage you to shift your thinking from what do I get from this 
membership to what can I give with this membership, which at one point would have gone right over my head. I wouldn't have understood that at all. But that's that's kind of a, a, a big part of the membership is what can I give to this community? Because there's a lot of people in there that that just they just view and, and they don't they don't post, but they just they, they view the posts. And it, it, it's it's a huge it was a huge part of my recovery too. When I finally realized that giving back is paramount in recovery. Now, what I'm about to say, Kim, you probably are going to disagree with me because there's a time when I would have said, Paul, you're you're full of it. Is we are one of the lucky ones. And I, a couple podcasts ago, I did did one about facts about alcohol, and roughly 17 to 18 million Americans struggle with addiction, and only about about three million of those get the treatment and get sober. And what that means is, is Kim, even though we've got three days and hopefully tomorrow's day four is we are the lucky ones. And unfortunately it sounds like your mom and, and maybe other members of your family is there's a role and perhaps there's a sense of denial and you know, they might not get sober, which is hard to say. And there was a huge light bulb moment for me in August of 2014. I was, I was in the middle of it. I was about a month is about a month after my DUI. I had a failed suicide attempt that same month. And I was in an AA speaker meeting and it was a younger gal who was speaking. I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but a huge shift of thinking in my mind. She was up there saying, why me? You know, why am I up here? And I'm thinking, preach on sister, poor me. Why am I sitting in this, this seat listening to you while my friends are out drinking on a Saturday night? And then she, she changed it on me. She says, why me? Why am I, why am I up here? Why am I sober? Because the, the odds, they're, they're against us, Kim. They are totally against us. And I know it might be hard to, to see, but we are both one of the lucky ones, including you. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I agree with you. I think that the, the one thing that I have that my family members don't have is self-awareness. Um, and you're right. I think, that, I think that they're in denial. And I feel really, really lucky that I have been able to recognize what I'm doing and to recognize that it's a problem. But, you know, at the same time, it it's everywhere. I, I guess because I'm more in tune to alcohol and the problems that it creates now, I see it everywhere. Just last night, I was hanging out on the couch reading a magazine, and it was a cooking magazine about, you know, the holidays are coming up soon. And no kidding, about 80% of the magazine had some mention of alcohol, whether it was an ad or hear recipes for cocktails you can make, or um, just a picture of you know a, a meal that they made, and there's wine next to it. It was everywhere. It blew my mind, and I thought there are these subconscious messages we're getting every single day in society. I can't even drive down the highway without seeing three or four billboards for booze, and. And I think so many people get those messages and sock them away without realizing that they're receiving those messages. And then they react, you know, later and say, oh, yeah, I can, oh, I, I can definitely have this drink. I can drink this or that. Or even a lot of people like my parents, you know, will just keep on drinking and they're getting these messages that it's fine. And so I feel so incredibly lucky that I have been able to see that, although at the same time I realize that it's a very dangerous thing and it's done this you know it's worked on my brain quite a bit and my brain does say sometimes oh it's okay as long as you don't do it when you're upset you know and I know that's wrong and I keep getting closer the more I realize that 
uh, the closer and closer I get to being able to say no and say, you know, that all that out there is BS and, and it's not good for me. And I just get closer and closer to just giving it up altogether. What you, what you first described was exactly why the willpower method does not work. It, it's everywhere, like you mentioned, in magazines, on TV, driving down the highway. If we're not connected with a program, a community, staying active in our recovery, investing in our recovery portfolio, the unconscious mind takes a beating. And sooner or later, my goodness, you know, the, the unconscious mind reacts a third of a second faster than the conscious mind. Sooner or later... We're going to get asked for offered a drink, and the answer is going to be yes. Be, oh my God, I just said yes, and, and then we're drinking. And the relapse happens way before the first drink. Next question, Kim. You know what? What have you learned about yourself so far in this journey into sobriety? Oh wow, that's a good one. I like I said, I had a lot of codependent issues growing up. I took care of people a lot, and what I've learned, and this is actually something that. I know it sounds weird, but I'm kind of grateful to alcohol for, is that it has forced me to look at these issues to, you know, start reacting to life in a healthy way. And I spent so many years putting other people's needs first to the point where I just realized just a couple years ago that I have no idea who I am. I don't know what I like to do. I don't know, you know, what my goals are really. I mean, I, I know what I should do according to society. You know, I need to keep, you know, working and making money and I would, I'd like to grow my firm, that sort of thing. I know what I should do, but I don't know really what's in my heart and who I am and what I want to do. And so that really changed a lot. And like I said, I don't think that I would have had that realization and start and the wherewithal to really start working on myself and digging deep on my issues. If I hadn't started abusing alcohol to begin with, it has really kind of been a kick in the face and made me start to really look at myself. And that was some work that I needed to do about 20 years ago. <laughs> so hmm. I'm actually really glad that it's forced me to do this work now. And, and Kim, I, I believe you have, and I still have ahead of me, a tremendous opportunity, which is to get sober. There's a lot of people out there that are just going through mundane lives and they can't quite figure it out. You know, what, what's wrong with me? But with me, the answer was simple. When I finally took the blinders off, it was alcohol. And I, I feel like you've got a tremendous opportunity with you. You've, you've already, you've already learned these things, like starting to learn who you are, what you want to be, what you need to do. And you mentioned again, the awareness of these negative emotions and the awareness of these, these poor coping mechanisms. It's okay to engage in negative behavior, but the awareness is it's for me, it's like half the battle. You know, it's like, okay, it's a negative emotion. I'm, I'm, I'm binge eating ice cream. It's okay. I'm, I'm aware and I'm not going to beat myself up. And on that thread, you know, in a post the other day in Cafe Ari, you mentioned not beating yourself up. Talk to me more about that. Yeah, for so long I did that. Uh, when I first started drinking, you know, in a really unhealthy way four years ago, I would get up the next morning and think, gosh, what did I do to myself? Oh, this is terrible. I, even though I don't, I very rarely ever drink around my children, I just thought, you know, this is who I'm becoming. I'm not setting a good example for my children. I don't want them to be like this. We already have issues in our family, and maybe I can be the one to break that cycle. I guess that, that that's a big part of it. And so anyway, so I, I was really wrapped up in that for a long time. 
I mean, for years. And then once I started really making progress with this journey and doing the work and being aware of what, you know, the patterns that I was falling into, then I started realizing, you know, that when I, when I beat myself up, I just end up in this cycle where, you know, I feel bad about what I did and it just makes me want to go out and drink again because it just keeps these negative emotions in the forefront. And so, like I said, once it kind of dawned on me that that's what was going on and I was able to forgive myself whenever I made a mistake, when I had a slip up, forgive myself and take the lesson that I learned from it and move forward. That's when I really started to see some progress. I mean, I know I'm on day three right now, but overall, I have actually made a lot of progress over the last six months or so. And I and I feel it gain, I feel like I'm gaining traction more and more every day. But a lot of that is moving forward and forgiving myself and allowing myself to be human. Avoiding the self-loathing after a relapse is huge because for me, after each relapse, there's a valuable lesson to be learned. And if I was beating myself up, you know, then that's the only takeaway that I got from the relapse was I was a complete loser that I should be ashamed. And it's a complete moral failing what I'm doing. But if, if, if it towards the end, just like what you're saying, you know, I started to realize more of what was going on, that this was an addiction. I started to read a ton of books. I started to, you know, just, just engage more in my recovery. And, you know, there's the, the phrase ignorance is bliss. Well, with recovery, it's, it's kind of opposite in alcohol in general, because my ignorance towards the end of my drinking, it was painful. It was not bliss. And then, like you mentioned, when I started to read those books, Alan Carr, Easy Way to Stop Drinking, uh, Annie Grace, This Naked Mind, Sarah Heppelow Blackout, those are just a couple. You know, the very first sobriety book I read, Beyond the Influence by Catherine Ketchum, yeah, the, uh, the blinders started to come off and I became less and less ignorant towards what I was consuming was a poison. And in my opinion, alcohol is the most addictive and dangerous drug in the world. And the numbers can actually back the, that statement up. You know, I had a ton of rock bottom moments, Kim. You know, I had my DUI in July of 2014 and I, I welcomed it. And I said, finally, this moment sucks so bad. This moment is so painful. Uh, it's going to springboard me into sobriety. And then a month later, I had a failed suicide attempt. And it just seemed like it got worse and worse. But tell us about a time when, when you felt like you had a rock bottom moment. Yeah, it, it happened, you know, like you. It happened probably about years ago and it should have been a wake-up call <laughs> but I was by myself and I was feeling really lonely it was really in a bad place my divorce was just about final and it was just becoming real to me and I was sitting at home alone and I I got a bottle of wine and I drank the whole thing at once you know in one evening and that for me was a lot at that time I think at that time I had never had that much before and I was suicidal and I, I actually had a plan and I started to carry through with it and I stopped and there was this little voice in my head. I think, you know, I've, I've since started to identify that as a higher power or higher self or something, but a little voice in my head said, okay, stop what you're doing right now. You tell you what, you go to bed and if you wake up in the morning and you still feel that way, then fine then, you know, we'll go through with it. And so I did that. I stopped and went to bed. And when I woke up in the morning, I said, no, I still have a will to live. My, I've always had depression issues. And so I said, you know, my depression, it's, I'm just recognizing that it's really bad. And drinking that whole bottle of wine made it a lot worse. Mm -hmm. And I went straight, I drove myself straight to a hospital and checked myself in for a few days. 
And that should have been the rock bottom moment because (laughs) I have no doubt that if I hadn't had that much to drink, I would have not put myself in that situation. And it was due to the alcohol, really. I mean, I should have just, that should have been a kick in the butt then. But unfortunately, I've, like you said, I had that, you know, that desire still. And I just kept going for two more years. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you had the right voice inside your head speaking at that time. um, Because often it's your addiction lying to you in your own voice. And, but you mentioned a strategy that, I, that I've used before is you, your strategy was, okay, go to bed and tomorrow if I feel the same way, then fine, we can act on it. And a lot of times when I had the urge to drink, I say, okay, we're going to go for a run and then we can drink after the run. And after the run, if I still wanted to drink, I say, okay, we are going to cook a healthy dinner. We're going to go to a meeting. And then after that, we're going to drink. And it would just kind of keep tricking my mind, keep postponing it, keep pushing it back. And great job on that, Kim. And Kim, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. All righty. Question number one, Kim, what was your worst memory from drinking? Oh, without a doubt, it was that night. Definitely it was that night. Um, I just, I think that was the lowest I've ever felt in my life. And I never want to be there again. When I woke up the the day after my failed suicide attempt, which was more, I was sober the night before. It was more on benzodiazepines, which are like Xanax and stuff. I, ha- I had a newfound respect for alcohol because it brought me to that spot. And I woke up and just said like, holy shit, this couldn't get serious fast. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. Next question. We've all heard of that aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you can't drink like a normal person? It was three days ago. <laughs> I was... You know, we were just having fun watching football. I love to watch football. And the next thing I know, I had a beer in my hand. It wasn't even like it, you know, we talked about the unconscious mind. It was almost like my brain just turned off and I, I was kind of in a trance almost. And had and next thing I know, like I said, I've had two beers and then it ends up being eight beers. And, and I just went what am I doing? I obviously can't control this because there's no way if I was in my right mind that I would have had this much. And, and if, and, and I remember too, I was a quote normal drinker that would have, that would have been impossible for me to do. So it was just, I guess that aha moment where I thought this is just something that's way out of my control at this point. And we touched up a little upon this earlier, but I want to hear you verbalize it again. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Accountability is big. Actually calling somebody. I think that when I'm feeling in that moment that I am feeling a little bit desperate, I can see now how reaching out to somebody will kind of break that cycle. I like the idea of tricking your mind into saying, and I've done that a couple of times too, and it has worked if I say, okay, you know, let's go to the gym. And if I still feel like I want to drink afterwards, then I will. And then usually it dissipates at that point. So those things, trying to really focus on my health, exercise, eating well, staying in therapy and reaching out to my therapist too, when I need additional help. And I also just want to maybe get in bed, (laughs) go to bed early if I feel cravings again, you know, stuff like that. And hanging out with my children is huge. Because when we're together, we laugh. They're at a great, they're at great ages now where we can really chat and we laugh and have so much fun together. And that also, I have no desire to drink when I'm with them. 
I'm going to throw in another question here. It sounds like you had a great time with your son, I think, on his birthday. It was a sober birthday for you. Tell us more about that. I did. So he turned 12 two days ago, and it was my, it was my day one. And I felt I was feeling so terrible all day, uh, physically a little. I should have. It seems like I should have felt worse physically, but I was emotionally really down. And when I, you know, I went over to his dad's house and grabbed him for dinner and my daughter came to, we just had the best time. And it really, really got me out of that frame of mind. And I thought, okay, you know, I can do this. I don't need, you know, as long as I'm focusing on the good things, I don't need to go and rely on the booze. And I was really, really grateful for for that evening and that dinner because it really kind of gave me the wake up that I that I really needed that day. Awesome. And what's your favorite resource in recovery? I don't want to sound like the teacher's pet here, but <laughs> my favorite resource, without a doubt, is the Cafe RE Facebook group. Everybody there is so supportive and loving and understanding and I've never felt like I had a tribe before I've always kind of felt out of place in the world and I kind of feel like I've got a home there I've never I've just never been exposed to that many people who get it and who are you know just so great and and warm and and supportive yeah, alcoholism is communal. In in it doesn't you don't have to be in the group long to you'd see people open up and and thank you for opening up and allowing myself to be part of your sobriety and, and thanks for being part of my sobriety. I, I much appreciate it. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? I love this one. When you're going through hell, don't stop. That just made so much sense to me, especially since I am, you know, in the, for the most part, been an emotional drinker. And, you know, when you're going through a really bad situation, I feel like stopping is giving into that craving. And, and that just doesn't do anything to help. And it doesn't do anything to get through the situation. So that just really struck a chord with me. And I just love that thing. When you're going through hell, don't stop. Yeah, that's similar to one of my favorite recovery quotes is you got to go through it to get to it. You can't dodge. You can't avoid these negative feelings. You just got to get, get, go through it. So, and, and what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober, Kim? This is one that I need to listen to more on my own, but (laughs) uh, don't beat yourself up. (laughs) Like I said, um, it just perpetuates, in my experience anyway, a, just a negative cycle of, of thinking. And in my experience, it's definitely made it worse and harder for me to move forward and, and just get to that goal of long-term sobriety. And Kim, before we depart, give listeners your own customizer. You might be an alcoholic if one. You might be an alcoholic if you actually enjoy being sick with a cold or a flu um, because it actually suppresses that desire to go get a drink for a while. Um, I had this thought recently. I, I just am getting over a, a bad cold, and I was sitting in the car one afternoon, and I just thought, wait a second, this cold is awesome. Like, <laughs> I haven't had any desire whatsoever to have wine in five days or so. And then, and then I thought, you know, maybe I should go to my kid's school and just lick all the tables so that I stay sick for a while. And then, and then the voice in my head, the rational voice said, okay, seriously, Kim, that is super messed up. 
<laughs> that is too funny. And uh, I said this yesterday in a webinar is we might be the only group of people that says, yes, it's Monday. You know, like, oh, we made it through the weekend. Like, we just can't wait for Monday to get here. You know, where other people are, oh, I can't wait for the weekend. It's, yeah, the weekends were tough for me in early, in early sobriety. So I just couldn't wait for Monday and Tuesday to get here. Kim, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great way to start my day. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Paul, for having me. Cafe, RE, online Facebook groups, all that stuff is great. But if you don't have in-person connections with other like-minded individuals, I highly recommend you do so. This past Saturday, I went to a Foo Fighters concert with a gentleman named Nate. I interviewed Nate in, I think, episode 7 or 8. He's approaching 7 years of sobriety. Now, Foo Fighters is not my favorite band. If you've been listening to the podcast, you would know that's a third eye blind. Even as Foo Fighters were playing Everlong, which is a great song, I still wish every song were being played by Third Eye Blind, and it was a Third Eye Blind concert, but it, it wasn't, so that's okay. The point of this anecdote is to tell you the two-and-a-half-hour drive to Billings and the two-and-a-half-hour drive back, it was awesome. Now, Nate is a father of one. He's got a second child on the way. Congratulations, Nate. But simply being in a car, having those conversations, we talked a lot about sobriety, a lot about, you know, drunk a log or drunk stories in the past. And it really reinforced just how important those in-person connections are. Now, I've seen a lot of people in Cafe RE meet in person, and that is fantastic. But if you're wanting to get sober, you're in early sobriety, and you don't have that local group, that local connection, you got to get it. Go to an AA meeting. Do whatever you can do. You got to find the local connections. And I also want to share an analogy. We did the Cafe RE book club, and the book was Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Control Drinking. I also found that some other members in the book club had the other book titled The Easy Way to Stop Drinking. It's so funny with the titles of some of these books, like Annie Grace, This Naked Mind, The Easy Way to Control Drinking. It's pretty clear within a couple pages that eh, there's no controlling anything at all. And in fact, if I ever do a book, something like that, I'll probably have to put something in the title as well. Because a lot of people that see the title, quit drinking now forever, they're like, no shit, where's the exit? I will never purchase this product. But the analogy was us drinking, when we drink, it's similar to putting a piece of tape on the oil light in our car. Because really what we're doing when we're drinking is we are masking a lot of problems that need attention. And it's the same thing of uh, pulling off some duct tape, putting it on the change oil light in our car. I loved it. And before we depart, I want to say congratulations to Pam in Wyoming for hitting three years of sobriety. I met Pam at our very first recovery elevator social. This was in Bozeman, Montana. I met here like two and a half years ago. Nice job, Pam. Okay, recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. <laughs>